Welcome to Twirl, the week in health law, the post-Root Canal podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on September 23rd, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And it's good to be back, good to be back together, Frank. Absolutely. So glad you're recovering, Nick. Yes. Well, and also, please uh, let everyone give thanks to hydrocodine. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it... Uh, uh, is incumbent upon me to remind you, dear listener, that it only takes a moment to go to iTunes and rate the show. Uh, please help us out by doing that. Your reviews and comments really uh, help the show and uh, uh, hopefully will lead to uh, us uh, improving it. So this week on Twill, we are happy to greet Lisa Ikamoto, the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at the University of California Davis School of Law. There she teaches bioethics, healthcare law, public health law, reproductive rights, law and policy, and marital property. Her research areas including reproductive and genetic technology uses, healthcare disparities, and public health law. Super having you with us, Lisa. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. So uh, amongst the many things that you are interested in and researching in, I know are um, sort of markets in body materials, body parts, and so on. And as I was thinking about that, I sort of thought back to sort of the, the – uh, you know, the casebook canon, if you like, on this topic, where presumably you discuss the Moore case and the uh, turning down of the conversion count and therefore uh, Im impliedly uh, property rights. Um, there's a Canadian case um, of a year or so ago, uh, Piljack, a state against Abraham, that seemed to suggest that the provider had property and body parts that were moved. And then, of course, we've got a whole slew of U.S. state statutes that provide for market inalienability. Um, so as I was thinking about that, you know, what's changed? Why, why is that canon perhaps under threat? Uh, what are the new markets that are developing? Well, I think in part it's because um, I think more overlook the realities um, of the demand for human cells huh. and tissues. Yeah. Um, and even as they were deciding that case in 1990, a lot of the assumptions that they stated as public policy, as justification for their holding were outdated. Um, the court relied heavily on the assumption that scientific research is socially useful. I think they did so with, they made a sort of blanket statement without qualification um, that was very much a part of the narrative that scientific innovation is progress. Um, and I'm not here to challenge that in particular. Well, I probably will, but that's not what I'm going to focus on. But they also stated, for example, that researchers share their materials freely with each other and recognized um, that a property right in patients would raise the cost of research. Um, and as I said, that decision was issued in 1990. And I think that picture of science was um, inapt by 1990, um, in part because the Bayh-Dole Act, which came into effect in 1980, had encouraged researchers to be much more protectionist um, about sharing their materials and about obtaining patents and therefore raising the cost of access to those materials. And then I think the other key part of it that often gets overlooked is that 
while all this was happening um, in the Moore case, while the Moore case was working its way up to the California Supreme Court, the fertility industry was forming. And in the context of the fertility industry, payment for things like eggs and sperm became standard practice. Right, because plasma, sperm, and eggs generally are not regulated by those state laws, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, and it's part of what I've been really interested in is that um, is the justifications, the way we ethicize the transfers um, and the pricing of materials like sperm and eggs. I've been focusing primarily on eggs and embryos, actually. Um, and there's some market differences that I think speak more to um, cultural and social norms than they do about law. Um, so, for example, um, in vitro embryos are transferred both for fertility purposes and for research purposes. And we don't think of those as something that should be priced or are priced. Um, there may be fees and other kinds of administrative costs attached, but there's been no real effort to attach a price to those materials, even though there's actually very little law or almost no law that says you can't do that. Um, but on the other hand, we have prices on sperm and eggs um, for fertility purposes, certainly, certainly, and often for research purposes as well. Now, presumably, there isn't much of a shortage of sperm and eggs, at least in contrast to, for example, body parts where we we have real problems getting sufficient donors. Does that explain some of the changes or is that seems slightly counterintuitive? Yeah, I don't I don't know if it's a shortage issue. I think in part the fertility industry and the practices of transferring um, what we think of as reproductive materials just rolled out in a parallel universe um, than that described by the case and more by the more um, more decision um, and so they went under the radar largely in part because they're cloaked in this um, you know, hopeful world of family formation, um, which no one really wants to regulate. Um, it take it would take a very brave legislature to significantly regulate the use of assisted reproductive technology. And so far, that just hasn't happened. You know, I think that this, uh, what you're raising here in terms of the uh, reluctance to interfere, say, in the family realm uh, on, in certain ways, you know, when they're in, in certain of these areas, uh, culturally uh, constructed no narratives of uh, personal freedom really seem to dominate. Uh, I think that's such an important narrative to get across, and I remember that also from your 1992 article on the, the perfect pregnancy and some of the ideas behind this, uh, this is a social ideal. Um, looking at some of your more recent work, in, I was really piqued by your commentary on the Facebook and Apple egg freezing benefit. Because I think that's one of those areas where, it, on the one hand, this is certainly framed as a way of increasing reproductive freedom. But on the other hand, one worries, does it become an expectation or something like that? You know? Yeah, I mean, I think very much in the fertility context, the, these practices take place, you know, part of the narrative of family formation, it's very pronatalist. Um, it's very much about promoting pregnancy, promoting fertility. Um, and yet, you know, maybe on deeper background is the abortion debate. Um, and then attached to that, because these materials are also used for things like stem cell research and cloning research and the new genetic modification technologies like CRISPR, um, as well as fertility research itself, um, you also have, again, this narrative about that equates um, science innovation with progress. Um, and you have that sort of big mix taking place and shaping the way we think about these transfers or transactions, if you will. 
um, part of what I was saying before is that in the fertility context, certainly, um, there's pricing going on um, of not embryos, but of eggs and sperm, certainly. Are those prices in any way influenced by non-US markets? You know, so for example, there are some countries that uh, do regulate um, uh, the sort of these these new types of parenthood, uh, particularly surrogacy. Uh, the UK, for example, with the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, put quite a lot of constraints on here. And uh, we've talked before in the show, uh, Glenn Cohen, for example, I, I, his episode, I think, Frank, about some of the medical tourism that goes on, both uh, coming uh, into the U.S. and uh, and and people leaving the U.S. for for services. Does that have any impact on what you're discussing? Oh, I think so. I think um, California uh, or the United States and California in particular is a major destination spot in the global market for fertility services. Um, and that's not just sort of the technological aspects or the, like, for example, in vitro fertilization, but also for eggs. So people buy, come to the United States to buy egg, uh, to buy eggs, to obtain sperm, um, as well as to undergo procedures like in vitro fertilization. Um, so, um, the part of what interests me is that the way that the payments are explained. So the fertility industry and to the extent that research institutions also pay for these materials, um, they explain the payments as being for labor, not for the materials themselves. There's this uneasiness about pricing the eggs themselves or the embryos themselves or the sperm. But it feels comfortable, more ethical to say that we're paying for the time and effort that the women and men who are providing these materials are are putting in in the process of being egg donors or sperm donors. So, Lisa, I was thinking about a lot about your perspective here in considering the meaning of price, the meaning of monetary exchange, and different rationales uh, and social efforts to say, oh, it's not really the payment for bodily material, it's payment for inconvenience or uh, the uh, effort involved. And it reminded me of some of the economic sociology of like Viviana Zaleser on the social meaning of money. And I'm wondering if uh, you found this economic sociology or other work to be useful in clarifying, you know, what was at stake in these characterizations of uh, payment uh, in these scenarios. Yeah, I find her work very useful. Um, I use, I often cite Pricing the Priceless Child, um, one of her other works. Um, I think it's important in part because she's shown, I think, that commodification is not a one-way street. And one of the big fears has been that once we price something, that it will always be priced. Um, and it also, I think she, she, what she's done very nicely is show that, um, this concern about pricing and in the process of get, of pricing something, giving up sort of the, in, um, intrinsic value. Um, that might attach to something or somebody, um, that those are not mutually exclusive. She uses that, that notion of hostile worlds um, that we've used to characterize the debate about commodification or the concerns about commodification. Um, so she's shown that you can have an intimate relationship that has significant social human value and yet also have a financial aspect to it as well. Um, so I think that's important in thinking about um, what we're doing when we price these activities. Um, but there's still a huge amount of weight um, being placed on this distinction between labor on the one hand and pricing the thing um, on the other hand. So labor and property, if you will. Um, and I'm not sure that distinction holds up. Um, so for example, we say that we're paying women for the time and effort that it takes to go through the egg retrieval process. 
Um, and yet, at least in the fertility context, the eggs are very often priced according to trait. Um, so Nick had mentioned the fact that a lot of this takes place in the global market. Um, and one of the big demands in California, for example, is for Asian egg donors because women are coming over from Asia, certain Asian countries where the restrictions um, on, on egg donation are very strict. Um, so they leave those destinations and they come here to obtain them or other practices as well. Ah, and this reminds me of some of uh, Nancy Liang's work on uh, racial capitalism and sort of thinking about the commodification of race. And um, it is a very, raises some very difficult issues. I mean, in terms of, um, I, I remember one of, uh, I saw you co-authored a piece uh, on the pregnant man, question mark, I think it was, with oh, um, right. several authors. and Many was, authors. I guess a conversation, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think Liz Emmons was one of them, and I, I recall her work uh, in the Harvard Law Review a few years ago about called Intimate Discrimination, about ways in which some groups are advantaged or disadvantaged in the, in the dating market, and it's just really... It's, it's such a tough issue to discuss, I think, as a society, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, very. Um, we're used to thinking of, I mean, we've, we've used in constitutional law, we've used this distinction between private and public as if they are mutually exclusive, and yet clearly they're not. And I think that that overlaps significantly with this hostile worlds idea between commodification and intimacy on the other. They're clearly not as separate as we'd like to think they are. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm also reminded a bit of there's uh, an emerging critique, I think, in some left circles of this do-what-you-love ideology. You know, there's this idea yes. that, you know, <laughs> just you, you should, certain jobs, like, or when school teachers go on strike, there's this responsible, don't you care about the children? Right. Like, you shouldn't be... <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder, you know, is this percolating into the reproductive uh, field as well? I think so. I've been reading um, recently the work of um, Arlie Hochschild. She did her, um, she's written a book called The Managed Heart. Um, and it sounds unrelated. When I, when I first described it, it's going to sound completely unrelated. She did, uh, she's an anthropologist and she did some field work that was a basis for this book called The Managed Heart um, on Delta flight attendants. And what she's taught, what she taught, what she captures in that book is this idea of emotional labor. So in a post-industrial service economy, um, much of what you get paid for, right, is how you um, display your emotions, what emotions are appropriate for your job, and how you help your clients or your customers manage their emotions as well. Uh, and I think that happens a lot in the bioeconomy. Um, so um, Nick mentioned the fact that, well, there doesn't seem to be a problem with supply um, for eggs and sperm, and yet there's a great deal of screening. So there, while there might be, a, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people applying to be egg donors and, and sperm donors, they are very carefully screened. In fact, the egg agencies and the sperm banks um, as part of their pitch, show how selective they are, how many people they have screened out during the process. And certainly one of the important screening criteria is the reason that they give for being a donor. So for egg donors, it's very important that they're doing it not just for the money, but because they want to help someone. Um, and I think that how they present and manage their emotions um, during the screening process is important. And when, if they meet potential um, parents who will use their reproductive materials, that emotional connection is part of what's being transferred as well. Let me turn to another issue that you work on that also, I think, captures this sort of collision between 
um, dramatically um, uh, iterating technologies and markets and personhood. And uh, those are the uh, the issues posed by uh, uh, the uh, CRISPR-Cas9 uh, uh, technologies. Uh, this pod has uh, made fun of acronyms uh, before, but when the phrase you're dealing with is clustered regularly into space, short palindromic repeats, <laughs> I think it's a tremendous relief that we can we can say CRISPR instead. I know I'm um, impressed that you were able to say that. <laughs> I've been practicing. <laughs> so. Um, couple of things since CRISPR last uh, popped up on on the pod. Um, again, I think it was back in uh, episode 11 with Glenn Cohen. We talked a little bit about it. And when Glenn was on, I think it was uh, um, just that week or so that there'd been an announcement from China that they were going to start doing some clinical trial work. And we sort of thought hard about that and uh, what it would mean for um, this country. And and yet back in uh, June of this year, I think it was, that uh, CRISPR got a sort of a green light from the NIH. It's, it's, a, it's, it's sort of more of a flashing orange, I think, in that a lot of the work is sort of being done using private funding and it's sort of a pilot and stuff like that, but it is going to be happening. And then this very week, talking of markets, um, uh, some some uh, big pieces, uh, primarily in, in the journal again, on the patent issues surrounding uh, CRISPR-Cas9 and how this is and is not affecting uh, uh, the markets for the technologies. So now I've introduced the topic. Um, could you explain it to our listeners and then sort of uh, give us a sense of what's going on out there with CRISPR at the moment? I'll try. Um, so CRISPR, I'm so glad you spelled out what, that's, what, what that means because, or what the CRISPR ac- acronym stands for, because I don't think I can ever say it without stumbling over all those words. Um, but it's a it's a new genetic modification technology. Um, it's not the only genetic modification technology, and it does much of what previous genetic modification genetic modification modification technologies have been able to do. Um, but it's easier to use, and it's much less expensive to use, and it seems to be more accurate. So you're less likely to receive uh, to get errors in using this technology. So the as you indicated, um, the most controversial use of this technology so far, and it's been widely used throughout biology um, on all kinds of living organisms, but the most controversial use so far has been the use to modify human embryos. Um, and that's sort of what um, the research in China in 2015 is what put CRISPR sort of in the public eye. Um, and as you said, the sort of got an orange light to go ahead with this in the United States. And more recently, it turns out that some researchers in Sweden um, have been using um, CRISPR to modify human embryos. Um, I guess some of the questions that come up for me, I co-authored, I had the chance to co-author a piece with some of my colleagues here at UC Davis, just about the language um, that's being used to describe the technology, because that so clearly affects the way we think about the issues. So the all the different metaphors that scientists come up with to try to describe what they're doing um, shape the way we think about whether or not these technologies are good and whether they're safe or dangerous. And gene editing has been the most commonly used metaphor for CRISPR. Um, we wrote an article about this since in the December issue of the American Journal of Bioethics, and we did a critique of the metaphors, um, including gene editing, because it seems to promise more precision and accuracy than it actually accomplishes. Um, and 
and that might mean that the potential risks um, get underplayed. I think, you know, some of my other concerns are concerns that I have about the way we deal with biotechnologies more broadly, and that's the fact that we tend to use a utilitarian calculus in deciding whether or not to go forward with them. We do this risk-benefit weighing, and the scientists get all the say-so over what constitutes a risk. And I think that, especially in these technologies where there's a lot of hype about the promise that they have, we tend to give more weight to the prospective benefits, and maybe we tend to underweigh the potential risks and burdens. So I have some very general concerns along those lines. But I have, you know, my particular area of, of concern is more about the impact on people with disabilities and the impacts on women. And I haven't seen as much conversation um, as I'd like about those two issues. Those issues are the way that perhaps the availability of these kinds of scientific techniques sort of implicitly devalues people who have the unedited DNA. Are those the sorts of concerns that you have? Yeah, I think so. I'm To some extent, it echoes, you know, the movie Gattaca um, and the issues that that was raised. But it, it does, it raises the question, you know, uh, if, does it depict, do the, does the fact that we have this as a possibility start to make us think of people with disabilities as people who should have been genetically fixed uh, before they were ever implanted in somebody's uterus? Um, so that's, that's certainly part of the concern. Um, and I think what that implicates more broadly is that some of these technologies raise bigger questions, that questions that fall outside that sort of risk-benefit calculus. They're questions about what kind of society um, do we want to live in and how do we want to think of ourselves as humans and our fellow humans. Um, and the way we deal with these technologies doesn't really allow us to really get to those. There are questions about democracy in a sense, but we don't do science in a democratic fashion. It, it is such an interesting relationship that you're uh, evoking here about the relationship between science and democracy. And I remember reading in some of David Noble's work about the congressional hearings in the 50s about the relative power of politicians versus the scientists who would say get government grant funding and at the time the technocratic consensus was oh we do not want these congress people uh, interfering with the ways in which we're doing our research the money should be no strings attached etc and then you know with like a silomar and some genetic engineering you get a bit of the pendulum swinging back to saying wait a second at least allocate some ELSI funds, the ethical, legal, and scientific implications, to think a bit about what you're doing. And I fear that now we're coming back to a uh, science above all, sort of um, let Silicon Valley, let technology solve it all approach. Do you, do you worry that that seems to be a cultural, that, that that's reemerging in the culture, becoming stronger in the culture now? Yeah, I think I agree with that conclusion. I think that that's very much a trend. This We are very deferential to scientific expertise. And it's not that I completely distrust the scientific enterprise, but I think we should bring some healthy skepticism to the conversation. And I think that there should be a conversation that is much more open and inclusive than has been. I think there was an attempt to start that last December at the International Summit on Gene Editing that took place in Washington, D.C., but it was not as as inclusive and of either people um, or issues as I, as, I, as I had initially hoped. How do you get that sort of discussion going, uh, particularly in the context of sort of the, the politicized rhetoric of, you know, cancer moonshots and the precision medicine initiative and so on. Um, it, it's hard to see how you can, can raise those issues 
up to a sufficient level um, to to get discussion going? What's the? I mean, is, is it does it really go back to a straight sort of a problem of the democracy kind of challenge? I think that's part of it. Um, you know, I don't have the answer. Sort of, that's what I'm working on is trying to figure out what is everybody saying about this. Part of it's looking at what other countries do. In the United States, we don't really do technology assessment, um, and we don't think of dealing with science innovation from a governance perspective. So just introducing those concepts into conversation in the United States, I think, would be an important first step. Maybe it's too early now to figure out, figure out the specific mechanisms by which that by which the greater conversation would take place, but we have first introduce the idea that the conversation itself is important. Make the case for that. We're relying very heavily on the market. We certainly are, and I recently have, uh, in the New York Times Room for Debate, there was an article calling for a revival of the Office of Technology Assessments that had been uh, defunded by uh, Newt Gingrich during the Contract for America uh, era. And I think that's, and the argument was that this OTA is all the more important because we have so much corporate funding of think tanks, particularly technology uh, related think tanks, that is passed off as objective, um, neutral advice, but is anything but. No, I agree with that. Yeah, it was a sad day when the Office of Technology shut down. And the Office of Technology Assessment was largely friendly. Um, it didn't call for heavy regulation of any particular, but I think those. There's a very strong libertarian strain politically that calls for the shutdown of all these different agencies and certainly the FDA, um, any potential for the revival of the Office of Technology Assessment is on that list first and foremost. It's bad for business. Although interestingly, and sort of playing devil's advocate somewhat, I mean, in Europe where there is new technology assessment, particularly in the UK with NICE and with the German agencies, those are incredibly utilitarian, aren't they? I mean, they are they are highly cost effective in their in their approach. Yeah, that's true. I think the idea of having technology assessment by itself um, is not a uh, is not a fix. Um, it, I think it's part, it's about what you mean by technology assessment. And so I guess what I would advocate for is looking beyond the risk benefit assessment. Um, maybe that's one piece um, of what needs to be take of what needs to take place. Um, but um, when I say inclusive conversation, I mean conversation that involves um, people who can speak to the human issues um, that get raised, the social issues um, that get raised, not just the health and safety issues. In terms of thinking about the future of this area, uh, I know that you've been involved in some very interesting collaborations across different parts of the university. And I was wondering if you might be able to describe your experience there or your thoughts on the potential of those types of collaborations. Thanks for asking about that. It's been very exciting. We've just re this has happened just in the past year and a half where um, funding has been made available by the University of California as a system to create these multi-campus, multidisciplinary research projects. And so a group of us um, on four campuses got some planning funding to set up what we now call the UC Bioethics Collaboratory. And we have sort of a basic website um, that's that's up on the internet right now, so you can look at it. Um, and we've recently applied for funding to expand that to seven campuses. Um, it's interesting because the challenge in bioethics has been that it's inherently interdisciplinary. So it's always medicine, science, often law, philosophy, religious studies, the social and behavioral sciences. And yet, I think most people who work as bioethicists work 
primarily alone, um, but reading the materials of people in other areas, um, in other fields, um, if you will. And this um, collaboratory that we're trying to set up actually enables us to come face-to-face, um, all people, people from all different disciplines, but also people from different campuses. And so trying to figure out how to talk to each other in itself has been very exciting and very useful. It turns out we all speak different languages. Um, we don't have a Dr. Doolittle who can translate everything for us, so we have to struggle through it ourselves. We use different methodologies. Um, we frame questions differently. We have different starting points for thinking about issues, and that in itself has been very fruitful. It's something because in, in some of the areas where I've been involved in these interdisciplinary uh, conversations and planning meetings, I have both found it really important and interesting to get the perspective, it's mainly of doctors and health professionals that I've worked with. I've also found that on occasion, their view is of the lawyer in the room that this is someone who's going to help us navigate some meaningless uh, paperwork. And once we have used them for that, that sort of essentially instrumental function, um, their purpose is done. And so I, right. and, and that, that worries me. And I mean, because I, I think that they don't really seem to grasp the idea of law as a repository of values and reflecting the values of society. Do you think that is a common problem? And do you think there's a way to sort of address that? Yeah, I, we haven't run into it in the collaboratory and think, I, in part, I think because we started from this place where we can do something new and exciting. But I definitely understand what you're talking about. I think that at research institutions, including academic research institutions, um, which is all supposedly about open inquiry, we still tend to think of bioethics as something, as a set of rules to be complied with. And that makes the lawyer really useful <laughs> as the compliance guide. So part of what we're trying to do with the collaboratory is to push beyond the idea of bioethics as compliance. So with the uh, the image in our minds of, of Frank being used and then discarded, <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, uh, we have to say that this was this week's The Week in Health Law. A very special thank you to Lizzie Kamal for joining us. Uh, it's been too long since we got to chat, Lisa. Great fun having Thank you. you. I with enjoyed us. it. Well, we post our show notes at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank? I'm at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.